0: To see all you folks out there in the blueberries. Uh, uh, congratulations on an absolutely uh, superb Naval Leadership Weekend a couple of weekends ago. I know some of you are nervous that I'm going to speak again, and you thought hearing me uh, once was uh, more than enough. But uh, I'm just here to, uh, first of all, welcome you and uh, thank you for coming out, and second, to uh, introduce a uh, very good friend uh, of the University of uh, Notre Dame uh, who's going to uh, introduce our speaker. Uh, Rich Early um, is uh, recognized as a distinguished uh, CEO, entrepreneur, and investor with a proven track record of launching and building uh, technology companies and leading them to success. And actually, a lot of the companies he's working in uh, are in the defense industrial space uh, that many of you uh, are going to uh, be engaged with uh, throughout your career. Uh, He's the CEO, Chairman and Founder of the Skate Group, a private global investment firm uh, in the information and aerospace, defense, uh, energy and power and communications industry. He's also a managing partner and co-founder of Dunrath Capital, uh, a venture capital firm that focuses on dual-use technologies in the private and the uh, public sectors. Uh, He has an MBA from Benedictine University, but more importantly, he has a BA uh, from the University uh, of Notre Dame. And he played football uh, for Lou Holtz the last time the University of Notre Dame won a national championship. So please uh, join me in giving a warm Notre Dame welcome to Richard.
1: So I noticed there are just a couple of uh, ROTC students in the audience. (laughs) A couple of uh, ROTC comments first and foremost before I do introductions. Uh, I played for Coach Holtz, as Professor Dash said here today. And uh, Coach Holtz, the first day he walked in uh, uh, when he was hired as coach, walked into the front row of an auditorium about this side, uh, size, and he said, uh, "From now on, I want you to look at that clock up there. There's no Central Standard Time. There's no Eastern Standard Time. There's only Lou Holtz time, Lou Holtz Standard Time. So from the now on, for the rest of your career." Uh, there's the only one time zone. It's called LHT, and LHT means that every meeting that we set, if it's at one o'clock, you're in your chair at 12:45, uh, 15 minutes early, with your shirts tucked in, with your hat off, and we're going to lock the doors at a quarter to one every every day. And if you're at 40, if you're at 11:46 or 12:46, uh, you are late, even for a meeting starting at one o'clock. And I noticed today that the ROTC folks were there at about 15 minutes before uh, the meeting started. You guys were aggregated out in front. You were here in time. So uh, thank you for uh, applying to LHT. I'm sure you guys had a little encouragement. <laughs> uh, secondly, before I introduce them, I just wanted to thank you personally. Uh, both Father Hesberg and uh, Coach Holtz were a big proponent of the role of the U.S. military and of the ROTC program. I you know you guys know there's a special relationship when uh, the officers' program here during the war stepped up and kept the Notre Dame doors open during a, a very uh, difficult financial time. So you yeah, have my personal admiration, and thank you for serving before I begin. Uh, in terms of introduction, as Professor Dest discussed, I am uh, both a CEO in the first part of my career, uh, founded and exited four uh, tech companies. In the latter part of my career, I'm a private equity venture capitalist in the Bill space. Uh, One lesson that we learned very early on uh, in terms of making something successful is you never build something, a new product or service, and hope people will come. That's a recipe for disaster. Uh, What you need to do is you need to work backwards to the customer program. You need to sit down with your customer that you've identified that you think needs this product or service. You need to work with them on the requirements. You need to work with them on their budget. You you need to make them a part of the process of building this new product or service or no one's ever going to buy it. I have the honor today uh, to introduce one of the subject matter experts, you know, one of the product managers, one of the architects, but in my view, one of the most disruptive technologies in history, certainly military history, as I'm sure you will agree. But in my world, in the private equity world, I do believe it's going to have a bigger and greater effect in the commercial space as well. And that is unmanned aerial systems. Uh, John Colonnay, sitting here to my left, uh, won't brag about himself, so I'll do it before I calm up here. Uh, He served his country for 23 years as a Marine uh, Corps uh, officer, intel officer focused. As you read in his bio, his last two jobs uh, were the program manager of the unmanned aerial systems for Special Operations Command and the uh, program manager for special applications for special kit. Uh, What does that really transfer to? You are looking at the architect, the product manager, uh, the subject matter expert in all the U.S. military of the non-man aerial platforms that you guys have seen and that you guys started to learn about. Uh, so for someone whose job is to find a subject matter expert to partner with uh, and who to develop product with and who to develop now acquisition strategies in the commercial space with, I've learned so much from him in the short period of time since he's been retired. I'm very grateful for him. Uh, to be here today, I think you guys should all uh, really listen to what he has to say because I think he really is the guy that was there in the beginning and shaped all the platforms that you guys could be using here in a very short period of time. So please welcome, uh, join me in welcoming uh, a true Notre Dame man, although he did go to IU and I tease him about all the time, uh, John Colonnays. Please go.
2: So, uh, all the Marine options, stand up. You show great judgment. <laughs> all right, go ahead. First of all, I did go to IU, and my IU classmates, my good friends, it, it to great disdain, and the truth is this, I root for Notre Dame. I went to high school across the street. I grew up a young Catholic kid in New Jersey. When I say, well, it used to be across the street, school's no longer there. St. Joe's, they knocked it down. But um, I grew up a small Catholic kid in Jersey, and we all rooted for Notre Dame. And, uh, you know, we didn't have ESPN. There wasn't 100 cable channels. So we didn't get to tune. And Notre Dame did not have a contract with NBC in uh, 1974, or whatever it was. Uh, but the reality was we checked the box score. We listened to them on the radio or the one or two games. I have an enormous affection for this university, more than my alma mater, and I say that publicly. Um, so it, it, it truly is a pleasure to have an opportunity to speak here, because I'm telling you, with my GPA, there was no way I was getting in that door uh, unless it was just as a guest. Um, that's, right, that's right, that's right, that's right. But. I did. So I'm a retired uh, Marine officer, and I, uh, I ran the UAV programs at SOCOM. And what that means at the headquarters is I was in charge of the acquisition of the systems we purchased, how we kitted them, the development of that technology, and then that gets fielded to great Americans who intend on going out and finding bad people and delivering bad intentions. And uh, that is what you're going to do. And... Uh, it is an honor to stand before you because when I joined the Marine Corps, it was, it was a peaceful place, the United States. You know, the conflict and all the counterinsurgency or the insurgent that was going, we didn't exist. And for young men and women to understand the level of conflict and to see the things that you saw on the news growing up and to decide, I'm going to put myself in harm's way. I'm going to serve my country. I tip my hat to you. You're the finest of the finest of your generation. And... Uh, God bless everyone again, yeah, and go out and serve your country. So, But to the material, I, before I start, uh, I'm a Marine, and I didn't join the Marine Corps for anything other than, uh, you know, they're like, "Go, do, you have some violent tendencies, so <laughs> go find something that'll suit your personality. But, and I, I tell you, it's not artistic. Um, sorry, Tegan, uh, it's not artistic, but this PowerPoint would have looked like crayons, had it not been for Anika Judson. She fixed it all, so thank you very much. She deserves a lot of credit for this not looking like an eight-year-old did it. Uh, I'm gonna start the presentation, as all you guys will understand. When we start, when I, I used to teach this Intel Schoolhouse, in every class, I started with a video of stuff blowing up. So I don't know why I should stop doing that. So, um, all right, here we go, old man glasses. See, that's technology right there. All right, I'm good. All right, that the ScanEagle UAV you saw, it's a, it's a very unique system and was very unique for its, uh, for its time, it's still around. But um, that UAV, literally, you saw it flying and you saw that big giant structure, there's a cable hanging from there. And what happens is that leading edge of the wing hits that cable, slides along the leading edge and it has an arresting or hook system and it grabs. It's very, very unique. And the reason it was a very, very attractive system to the Navy, particularly in the Marine Corps, is because of that recovery in the footprint, it it was very viable, what we would call sea-based ISR. So that, from a Navy side of the house, um, that technology in the UAV was kind of something they pursued, although, as I was talking to one of your professors, uh, the Navy, in the last few years, has reduced its budget into the tactical ISR game and invested in other places. Um, so, the slide up here says game changer, and, and, I, and I would probably use that term in our lexicon way too much. It's, that is an easy thing to justify. We're gonna go through this brief, in this discussion, and you're gonna, I'm gonna to try to articulate this in terms of national security and the operational relevance of the capability. But it has absolutely changed how a tactical commander is going to conduct war. It has absolutely changed national policy in the intelligence community at a strategic level. There are missions that we would have never undertaken from a risk standpoint with a manned system or from a collection standpoint in the intelligence world because we physically couldn't have achieved the end state we desired. UAV's changed a lot of that. I can go back to the early 90s, and it is really interesting for me to see the evolution of that technology. And we're gonna talk a little bit about a Pioneer UAV, but the evolution, so you're all used to LED screens, and you're watching videos, and it looks like, uh, what, Xbox or whatever. The first mature production Pioneer GCS I ever went in was a giant truck trailer. And, you know, as you can imagine, because you grew up in the age of computers, they do their missions now and it's, it's a digital file and we save it. Back in the day, you went in this trailer, they were all uh, military pilots, they weren't UAV pods. The one guy I became good friends with, a guy named Captain Berryman, was a Harrier pilot, a POW during Desert Storm. The Iraqis shattered his leg when he uh, cracked his femur. Great guy, and he was literally not qualified, medically qualified, an airplane yet. He went to the Marine UAV unit when we stood it up. And it was a big trailer, and our missions, when we saved them, it was an, an electronic arm as the guy flew. It had the equivalent of like a pencil, and it drew, and we had to line up the maps, paper maps, calibrate the system, and it would draw a line on the map. And you'd save the map. Uh, so think about where we've come. There's so many, that's a separate discussion in itself, the evolution of the technology. It, it has changed the way we do our targeting cycles. We're gonna talk about that. Soft. when I was in Special Operations Command doing some intel stuff, it really evolved how we would target an individual. Because when, uh, when you're fighting an insurgency, which is the enemy that we fought to, to great respect, it, we're not trying to destroy tank battalions. We're trying to find an individual, a guy, a person, and kill that person. I can't collectively tell you how hard that really is. If I told you, I'm gonna, here's a person somewhere in the world, go find that person and kill him, and don't hurt the guy standing 12 feet next to him. And... So our operations have become very surgical, and you need special tools to do that. So from a national security perspective, this technology's growth over the last 20 years has uh, changed the game. There's no doubt about it. Look at this, see I'm already getting beat by the machine. Right. Does anybody know what that UAV is? Preferably, any, is Army ROTC here at all? Any of the stu- cannon, students? Because it's an Army UAV. All right. Anybody know what that is? All right. That is a Gray Eagle UAV. So has anybody heard of the Predator? Okay, so the Predator is the one you always hear about on the news probably when they say drone strike you know, in the Pakistan. It's uh, the same company makes it General Atomics. So there's the Reaper, um, and then or that which is a bigger predator for the most generic way to explain it. And then the Gray Eagle, same company sits somewhere in the middle. This is an Army program record, and Army Special Operations Command has these as well. But so General Atomics is the company, but the Predator is probably the most known to the average American watching the news because it really got its notoriety, good or bad, how you feel, because it was uh, recognized uh, for the deliverer of a lot of the strikes that you all hear about, drone strikes. All right. So you got to have an agenda slide. This is what I'm going to talk about. Um, we're going to talk about why UAV. And what I mean by that is why would you use that technology? So there's technological reasons, there's other reasons, there's political reasons, do or do not. There's a moral re- There's a moral discussion now about this. Uh, we're going to go through some terms that you need to understand. And if you're going to be in the military, you need to understand it. If you're going to take a civilian track and do anything with policy to do with the military, you need to understand these terms anyway. Uh, We're gonna go over a little history, some mission applications. I'm gonna give you some DOD architecture so you understand where it fits and then how it fits in the national security uh, place. Some technological drivers that uh, basically affect the industry and how we use it. Uh, And I'm gonna give you a couple vignettes and then we'll close up. All right. All right, so, oops. Wrong one, too much. All right. Why UAV? So um, we're going to go through this chart. So, have you have any? Uh, do they talk about campaign plans at all? Our, do you ever heard of that term, campaign plan? Ah. Right. So there are plenty of them, and you see this one as a number, and they have numbers, and they're very strategic documents. And I mean, they're signed by the president. They're signed by the Secretary of Defense. And the campaign plan is a very strategic vision of how we, the United States of America, is going to get to the desired end state on a problem. 7,500 happens to be combating terrorism networks. Pretty important plan. You know, tends to be on the news every day. The, the, you know, global terrorism. SOCOM, Special Operations Command, is the executive agent. Um, I am pretty darn confident that one of your leaders here, uh, who is an SF uh, third group guy, uh, has been very involved and have been a part of that plan. Uh, so, Senator Platt, am I right? Right. So he is, he is a mechanism at a strategic level that he's a leader of mechanisms that execute that plan out of effect. So the green is good, red is bad guys, pretty simple. And so what we're talking about on the green side, and you see the blue arrows, we want to strategically do things to shape our environment, to shape things to have a stable environment. So this could be partnering with other countries, and it doesn't have to be the United States military. We can be using the State Department. We can use uh, national aid organizations. We we, We don't want it to be what we would call kinetic. Kinetic is, I take a bullet, the most dangerous weapon in the world, right? A Marine with a rifle, right? Delivering bad intentions at the end of that rifle. And that is a mechanism I firmly believe this country needs, but it should be a last resort, okay? So... There are mechanisms that are non-kinetic, not weapons-killing people that we want to help shape our environment. There are small partner countries that have a terrorist problem. We, want, we train their military. It's called FID, Foreign Internal Defense. We send army, marines, sailors, airmen to these countries and train their military on how to defend their country, how to do intelligence, how to collect it, how to do a raid, how to fast rope out of a helicopter. And there are mechanisms at all levels of government. And that'll all be in that plan. Shape that environment. But then there are the bad guys. And we have to figure out how to control them. Now all these mechanisms aren't bullets or warheads to foreheads is a term you may hear when you join the military. It's not all about that. It may be a cyber attack. We may shut down their internet. We may. We may do something very, very passive where we use another nation to influence. So we're trying to affect our environment, shape it, stabilize it, but we also want to come up with a plan that directly uh, stops the enemy from doing what the enemy wants to do and allows us to set the conditions that we want. That makes sense? Now, I, I got the one block. Irregular warfare is a term you need to understand because We used to use things like insurgency, and we conduct a counterinsurgency, there's guerrilla warfare, there's, uh, in the soft world, there's unconventional warfare, UW, and they all mean things. Irregular warfare has kind of collectively scooped all those things. Those terms are still legitimate, but irregular warfare applies to anything that's not conventional. All right, here's the good news. Another video. Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the Code Red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do.
3: Object. And when it went bad, be you okay. cut these guys loose. Your, be honor. Be you these guys loose. your Honor, you are markers inside a body transport. Your Honor, you doctored the logbook. You can't. Can't. Consider consider yourself in contempt. You. Colonel Jessup, did you order the Code Red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. Did you order the code red? I did the job. Did Did you you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did.
2: All right. So what is the relevance of that video other than that's really motivating? Uh, (laughs) And quite frankly, I guess, I didn't, it's, that's, that's plenty of reason to show that video. I love that. It's a great scene. Every Marine I knew, when that movie came out, had that remembered word for word. You'd be sinking around drinking beers and you'd be going through the dialogue, you know, the whole thing about, I gave you this. It's fabulous stuff. <laughs> fabulous stuff, man. Alright, but the truth is, um, what the relevance to that is, what are they, the issue that they're trying to go over? There's an issue about ethics and morality there, right? Jack Nicholson, who plays a great marine colonel in that movie in Guantanamo, he's saying, hey, he, he might have died. We, you know, And, and if, has anybody not seen that movie? Anybody not seen that movie? Ah, that's, you're wrong. OK. <laughs> so he um, talks about this code red for you two that didn't see the movie. Else. I'll spare, but they, they basically punished a Marine outside the parameters of the UCMJ, and the Marine dies. And so that's what the movie's about, discovering that, and Jack Nicholson in the end admits it. And what the ethics is, Nicholson saying, hey, you know, I got we, we're training warriors, blah, blah, blah. So it's a morality issue. Oh, does the ends justify the means? That's part of the equation. Um, absolutely, there is a culture in the military that is different than, that does not apply to civilian sector. You know, when, I, when you're in combat, it ain't about fair. It ain't about everybody gets the same. You're in combat. It's about killing the enemy and bringing your Marines home alive. That's what it's about. And the other stuff, in my opinion, doesn't matter. So it's, but clearly, in the military, it's important, particularly if you're going to be an officer, that you operate at the highest moral and ethical standard. You're always above board. Or you will lose the faith of your subordinates. And so this is a morality issue. So what's the morality issue of UAVs? So we're going to talk about the morality and the conundrum that it causes and how that put pressure on all the conventional considerations of a UAV. So why would I pick a UAV? Risk the human life. That's the obvious one. I can now do a mission and not risk a human life. Simple. Um, There's physical limits. The human body has physical limits. Whether it's G-force, I can fly UAV 24 hours. I can't have a human being, if it's a cockpit of one, sit there and fly a mission safely and stay focused for 24 hours. The physical fact that I can get rid of the human being and all the life support systems, it allows me to open up the design of the aircraft. Any aeronautical engineers in here right now? All right, I might pick on you later. Okay. so. The aeronautical design of the aircraft, um, I can do things that I couldn't do because I have to take into consideration a human beings in the, air, in the vehicle. There's the risk, the physical risk to the mission, not the risk to the human being. The risk I'm willing to assume to whether to be compromised, whether it'll fail, uh, I'm building technology with greater capabilities. So we have a tendency, believe it or not, um, in the beginning to assume that risk. But let me tell you what's happened, in my humble opinion. At times, we're forgetting why we built autonomous unmanned systems. I have seen the, you know military planners going out, we can't risk losing that UAV. Yes, you can. That's why we built the technology, because we don't want to put a human in the mission. But what's in blue there is manpower. And that's a negative. So Admiral Olson, who... Uh, not too long ago, retired as the special operations uh, uh, commanding uh, admiral, the commanding officer of SOCOM, used to say, I have more people, I require more people to operate an unmanned UAV versus a manned system. That was the joke. It takes more people when it's unmanned. Because, like you look at a Reaper, a large UAVs, you have all these people that have to recover and launch the system. So, it is a. It can be an enormous manpower drain, believe it or not, uh, to operate these systems. So what's the moral dilemma? Well, on the left, you see connotation drone. You hear in the news, drone strike, wedding party, killed an innocent person. And I'm not telling you that that has not happened. I'm not telling you munition has been delivered to a target and something happened where a person that we didn't want to die died. Of course that's happened. And It is tragic every time. It's a loss of human life. Not to, uh, you know, that's not something you should take lightly. However, our enemies also have the ability to lie and to project stories that weren't true. Uh, You know, and again, I say the wedding party because it seemed every time we dropped a bomb in Afghanistan for three years, we had hit a wedding. I mean, those people were getting married all the time. It's amazing. the connotation of drone, people don't like it. And there are countries that feel that it has political consequences for them, and they don't want us to operate our UAVs out of their country. That is a national security issue. That is a State Department policy thing. That's a big deal. That technology has influenced the world so much, it has a connotation that will affect our country to country policies. And then the moral dilemma. Um, It's it's an ethics issue. Morally, will us developing autonomous technology make us more willing to go kill people? We won't take, you know, because we're not putting Americans in harm's way. Are we going to be less judicious about our due diligence to decide to do it? I'm going to tell you my opinion. Autonomous is good. Will that happen? I hope not. I have a lot of great faith in this country and the morals and values that the United States of America was founded by and lives by. I'm not saying that that's not a topic that shouldn't be discussed. But I guarantee you, the day I die, I could walk in here and go, I believe in autonomous technology. Any questions on that? All right, so I'm not going to go over all these terms. but. You're going to hear these terms, you're going to use them. Um, general intelligence is, is real, more about the topic of intelligence. Intelligence is the collection of it, the physical collection of information. Uh, surveillance and reconnaissance. This is interesting. I was an Intel guy, and I've heard different answers a million different ways. I'm not sure we even know. Uh, you know, there's doctrinal, if you read the doctrinal definitions, you're going to go, what's the difference? I would look at it this way. Surveillance is when I am observing a known thing. I know a hostile. I have a high-value individual. I know where he likes to go uh, shop for whatever you shop for now. Uh, It's where he goes and gets his coffee at Starbucks. And I, I am going to observe him. Surveillance, I am going to observe you, a known entity. Reconnaissance is a little broader and has more aptitude. Like the Marine Corps Force Reconnaissance Units, right? That now we pulled out and we made a Marine Special Operations Command. We used to do something that we learned in Vietnam called pull reconnaissance. They'll go out. Their their objective is not to get into a fight, because they're not heavily armed, and there's few of them. But they can. And they'll go out, and they're looking for uh, an area where they can pull the main force through an operational area and not be engaged or not be outmaneuvered by the enemy. So surveillance, I'm looking at a known entity. Reconnaissance, in my mind, is more of I am searching and collecting information. Do you get the difference? Because I'm not sure I do. Title 10 and Title 50, we're going to go over. If you are going to have anything to do with national security, you will learn about these two things. I guarantee you will, if you spend any time in the military, you will understand Title 10, and you will understand Title 50. And if you are wearing a uniform in the United States military, you only have one. And it's a relevant difference, in particular, if you're an intelligence officer. So, Title 10, it is the rules in the code that are given to our military, how they're allowed to operate. Do you, do the RTC folks, have you ever heard of Title 10? No? Yes? No. Okay, Title X, very important, all right? It's what you're allowed, it's your code by which you're allowed to operate, which Congress says, and the United States of America says, there are things you're not allowed to do. You can't go collect, you can't go out here in a military uniform and go collect intelligence on an American citizen. Did you know that? Okay, you did? Of course you knew that. Wait, you get what I'm saying? So there's codes, and these things dictate those things. All right, Title 50, national security. Boy, we're talking about national security here. Uh, any, any non-ROTC political science majors in here? Nope, okay, I was gonna ask if you knew what Title 50 was. Where? Do you know what Title 50 and Title 10 are? Okay, well now you do. <laughs> All right, maybe i get you extra credit or something, huh? All right, give them a quiz, none of it. That is the all right. um, That outlines the war of the United States. That is our national security policy. It is very encompassing. What falls under Title 50, part of what falls under Title 50 is our what we call our intelligence community. So, uh, clandestine and covert operations, the CIA, the United States. Although even intel guys uses the term really inappropriately, like you know when you want a soda and you say give me a coke. We'll say the word covert. The United States military intelligence entities in the um, United States, yeah, military intelligence do not have the authority to do covert operations. And you can see the definition. We can do clandestine, the CIA has the authority to do covert. Okay? All relevant to national security. Now, why does that matter to UAVs? Because the technology I put on a UAV, and budgets that the CIA is going to get, and missions, and how they design that technology, they really have mission sets that might be very different, and authorities very different than me in the military. All right, OpCon, on, and AdCon. Operational control, tax control, and administrative control. The reason that you're going to know those terms, I'm going to talk to you. It has to do with the DoD structure and interrelationships and roles and responsibilities uh, within inside DoD. All right. So I was telling you that it was a game-changing technology. One of, in my opinion, the most obvious and significant changes is this: F three EAD. This is what we would call like a targeting cycle. Now, I will say, when I was a young officer in an intel community, I would make the argument, everything, you'll hear people say, we do targeting differently now. I don't 100% agree. We, the targeting cycle, is basically the same. We use different terms. But philosophically, there is a difference. And the UAV technology and what it brings specifically changed how we do targeting because we could do things we couldn't do. And what I specifically mean about this is when you, when you look at this definition, you can do all kinds of reading on this, one of the main things you need is, remember I talked about, I got to find a bad actor in some bad town, in some bad place in the world? And I want to do something we call life pattern of analysis. I want to know his habits. I want to know when he leaves the house. I want to know when he goes to Starbucks. I want to know who he knows. I want to know who meets with him. I want to know all these things around him. Not am I only building an intelligence, but because we are a country of moral and ethics as we conduct warfare, why we operate by a Geneva Convention. We do these things. Because we have a conscience, and that's something to be proud of. But it makes all of your jobs very hard. So we have to be more surgical. I just can't kill people. Oh, I killed the guy I wanted. Who else died? Who cares? Our enemies do that. You know that. You see it on news. They wear vests and blow up kids. We don't do that. What UAVs have allowed us to do is to be very surgical. We can fly over that guy. He doesn't know we're there. And we're staring at him, and we're learning life patterns. And this model got built by the special operations community as we evolved and learned to how to use that technology well. And the key thing is persistence. I can have that persistent eye, 10 hours. We didn't do that with manned systems. They didn't have the capability. They didn't have the legs. The human thing I talked about, the human physical limit, we can do that now. We can do it now. So, One major thing UAVs have done to change the game in national security is this: they have made that a reality. All right, some history of the UAVs. I picked the pioneer because the Marine Corps used them. That is the real reason. But uh, it really was one of the earliest adopted, production-ready, utilized UAVs. Now look at this thing. Look how that was. Look how we captured that thing back in the day. Hundred percent of the time, something would break. One hundred. I'm dead serious. It doesn't have to be a major. I'm not saying you know it might be a patch job, but you're taking a lot of weight. Any physics majors in here? Okay, stand up. All right. I got a lot of weight. Yes,
3: sir. And it's moving at a relatively high speed. Yes, sir. And it stops
2: suddenly. It's a high change momentum, sir. Oh there you go. All right. <laughs> I was gonna say that, but you said it too fast. Thanks sir. But it physics. <laughs> but physics says that there's a good chance something's gonna break. It? Yes sir, that is what Physics says. Okay. That's, That's why you're in the name, son. Uh. Okay. Now look at that launcher. That launcher is massive massive the one at the top that is a massive launcher we would never produce and deploy anything like that for that little of uav the launchers now are one-fifth the size and weight of that it's a giant catapult now at the bottom that was called a RATO launch rocket assisted takeoff or RATO bottles and they would literally sit on a stand it was really cool but what was cooler was when it didn't work right because um, where's that arrow guy? Well, give me an arrow engineer. I right, stand up. All right. So I got a rocket projecting this UAV, right? And I got two of them, and one of them doesn't work when they go off. Is that bad?
1: Yes, sir. It would put a rotational momentum on the
2: Exactly what I was gonna say.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so. But it was really cool to see a rocket take a UAV sideways and go boom. Because I didn't pay for it. <laughs> so those I just want you to give a perspective of how this technology has evolved. It's it's indescribable. And I had I had this luxury, this blessing to, to really watch it firsthand. Um, so What did we use them for? Well, by the way, the Israelis were using UAVs, and I mean, you know, a guy with a radio control, remotely piloted a vehicle in the 60s. You probably didn't know that. The 60s, right? Uh, In the uh, 80s, the UAS was playing with them. Now, we used them for, we'd remote control them, and the pilots would do it for pilot training, air-to-air, you know, shoot it out of the sky. And then in the 90s, the Marine Corps really started using them Uh, and had units and so forth. And a Hunter and a Pioneer are two of of the ones that were early mature. And you see this design with the two booms, very common design. You'll see that design from the earliest Israeli systems. Pioneer was an Israeli company, but a lot of UAVs copy that. And there are reasons. Aero engineer, stand up again. Why do you think I would design an airplane that looked like that?
1: Uh, I would say that that, that tail configuration would give more stability. It does.
2: Well, <laughs> look where the prop is. Where's the prop?
1: Oh, is it in between the two?
2: It's in the it's in the middle, right? It's behind the engine. Is in the back of the fuselage. Yes, sir. All right. So why would that be bad?
1: Well, I was one thing that would give about is it would give uh, more. The,
2: um, Center of gravity. Gravity. gravity, spot on. That's why they put the engines there. You're right. But well, why is it bad?
1: Uh, potentially dangerous for the, the now, tail movement. Why is it bad? Think about air to the prop. Uh, yes. It's, it's bad, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Don't you get dirty air? See, I taught you something. Sit down. <laughs> dirty air. Why is that relevant, though? Noise. I, I these these early on all these engines were two-stroke engines, which means it was what you're a giant weed eater. It's really loud. And so how do I make it quieter? I got exhaust noise and I got prop noise. Dirty air to the prop, gotta spin the prop faster, right? Alright. See he agrees with me. So I, I tips on the blades go faster, past the speed of sound, very loud. Okay? So that's why. We've tried some of those technologies, depending on if you want a quiet UAV, pusher prop bad. That's a pusher prop. Tractor prop's in front. Motivating Marines.
1: Those are
2: He's controlling, I mean, the hand controls. that's a part's
3: Good. All
2: right. This gives you a perspective. Again, I never would have figured out how to embed a video if it wasn't for Nika Johnson, thank God. See, I did this for all you millennials. <laughs> Made an app slide. All right. Okay. All right. I want to make sure you understood. Um, you, which one? A oh, like better analysis. The only. Okay, I'm an Intel guy. I hate social media. It's very, very dangerous. If you want me to screw up your life, Invite me to legally do things that's normally illegal, and I will exploit more than you'll ever realize, and you'll be humiliated. So um, social media, bad. Bad. Social media, bad. All right. So um, but I do have Snapchat, because I have four kids. One of them is a 15-year-old girl, and that's her life. And so every time I see a Snapchat, and there's a boy in it, I interrogate her. <laughs> and I've done tactical interrogations, so I'm kind of good at it. So, taking them, your dad and I are talking. i <laughs> so, will teach them all kinds of crazy things. All right. So uh, life pattern analysis is a perfect example, right? I talked about what that was. UAVs did that. Now, we did life pattern analysis. I used to teach things called link analysis. We didn't call it life pattern analysis. You know, somebody changed it and took credit that it invented something. They didn't invent pattern analysis. We've done it forever. What the UAV let us do was stare at a target with an electro-optical imager for hours upon end. That's what the UAV did. We've always done pattern analysis, and I used to teach in the schoolhouse, like I said, we teach human surveillance. I follow you around. Following's a very uneducated, generic way of explaining it. Human, eyes on a target. Because we didn't have the ability to project the technology and assume that risk. Now we do, okay? These are all different missions. I'm not gonna go over them all. Force protection, strike. So um, that's relevant, believe it or not, in a bigger way. When I have a platform like a Reaper, which is a really big UAV and it's got weapons on it, this is how crazy it gets. That comes, that's a strike platform, not an ISR, not a reconnaissance platform. And literally, so think, when I have a reconnaissance only platform, then when I would have to go defend my budget to congressional staffers, um, the intelligence committees care. But when it's a reaper, it's got a camera, it does all the same collection stuff and more, but they put Hellfires on it, that's a strike platform. Okay. Battle damage assessment, we blow some up, smoke clears, stare at it, is it destroyed or not, right? Do I want to put further kinetics on that target? All relevant. All right. Route reconnaissance, mission planning, um, TTL at the bottom, XFIL. So tagging, tracking, and locating. So um, one of the hardest things about that, so I tag you. You don't know it, right? There's something on you. It's tracking you, GPS, whatever, um, telling me all kinds of crazy things. I have to get that data. It's called in the data. So you're in the middle of some hostile place I cannot get to. So when we do TTL operations, they're typically very small devices because it would be hard for me, you know, uh, if it looked like this, it would be hard for me to hide it on you or in your sneaker or whatever. But what happens is when I make things very small, I now have to have a very small antenna and I have to have a very, very small. Any electrical engineers in here? stand up all right hey now so you were foolish enough to put your hand in here so i want to communicate and send an rf signal what year are you in school all right so you're 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 you've had some rf stuff all right so i want to generate an rf signal and i have a really tiny antenna and very little power is that good or bad
1: that's uh, pretty tough
2: yeah okay exactly right Power and the size of antenna matter. And oh, by the way, I need to send the signal up to a satellite. Oh, it gets harder because I'm going really far, right? Atmospheric absorption, all that crazy stuff. So, thank you. So, um, the point is, technology, really, really hard to build something and exfil the data. Well, now a UAV is a lot lower than a satellite, Right? And now I can, I can look for it. I can search. So from an exfil of tagging, tracking, locating, something you never would have thought of, UAVs allow us to do things that we couldn't do before well. All right. Real quickly, Title 10 Title 50, I talked about this. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on this slide, but... It dictates authorities and missions, and that is relevant. It's relevant to the technology. It's relevant how I'm going to use it. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes the CIA and SOCOM would share very, very well. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? It's great. Other times it's not so good. And it's not for bad reasons necessarily. You know, when you're doing very sensitive intelligence operations, and particularly when people's lives are at stake, And also, when you have something that is doing very, very well, collecting very critical information, you have to be very sensitive of that being compromised. Because once it's compromised, you lose the collection or someone is in harm's way. So it's not always for bad reasons that sharing doesn't happen. But the reality is, more people know than more chance of compromise. That is just our human nature. Uh, There's a good friend of mine, I hope he never watches this video, I won't say his name, and we have a joke between the rest of us, that if you want everybody to know something, tell him a secret. Get it? Compromise. Human lips. It's a big deal in the intelligence community. All right. Wow, that didn't go over well at all, did it? I'm just going to assume you didn't get it. All right. The, all right, so the DOD structure. This is extremely relevant because we're going to define roles and responsibilities. UAVs in that national security uh, picture. So I don't want to go over this, but you have the Secretary of Defense. He has the, sec- the services of the Secretary, right? There's a Secretary of the Army. There's a Secretary of the Air Force. And there's a Secretary of the Navy. You, you Right? Now, no secretary of the Marine Corps, is there? What? He's under the secretary. secretary of the Navy. That's absolutely correct. All right. Now, if you say to me, which many do, my good sailor friends, hey, you know you're a Department of the Navy, don't you? I say, yes, we are. We're the men's department. <laughs> All right. So. And and I say that jokingly, because I'm telling you, I have a bunch of tremendous friends in the United States Navy, so it is all in good fun. Um, So the secretaries are civilians. And this goes back to our democratic republic. We didn't want military leaders completely in charge of everything, because look around the world. That's a pretty bad model. So we have civilians that are in charge of these military leaders. So the Commandant of the Marine Corps works for a civilian. Secretary of the Navy. Now, so you see that on the side, you have service chiefs. So the Commandant, chief, the head military guy, right, the four-star in charge of the service. What is their role? Their role is to train and equip. They do not really, they do not operationally fight wars. The Commandant of the Marine Corps does not go into an area, an area of operations, and lead Marines into the combat. They train and equip, right? They're, they decide the, if the Marine Corps is going to get a new uniform, the Commandant's going to do something like that. It's administrative. It's procedures. It's the, it's the specific rules to the way the Marine Corps is going to act. Marines do not salute indoors. All right? We don't. The only time I'm ever gonna, I would ever salute indoors, right, simple thing, is if I'm under arms. If I'm under arms, I have a cover, and I salute. The other services do. My Army brethren will do that in certain instances. We don't. That's a Marine Corps thing. When we fight wars operationally, and we have military commanders fighting those wars, that is on the other side. So you see these—you um, uh, see these blocks. That the, these are the combatant commands. All these. Some of them are considered functional. Cyber Command—it's brand new. Okay. They do, they're very focused on cyber-related activity. That's a functional. Then there's operational commanders, and they're given, they cut the map up of the world, and they say, this part of the world, you're in charge of. So if we're going to war, and when there are forces are in that area of operations of that part of the world, you're in charge. Who has heard of U.S. Central Command, who is always in the news for fighting the war in the Middle East? All right? I used to work there. I worked at the, the operational comp- soft component underneath that. And so you see that, US Central Command. Well, you see all of them. All of those in black have a region of the world. Believe it or not, US Northern Command has America, Mexico. So you even have one here in the United States. All right? Does that make sense? Those are your warfighting commands. All right, so we kind of talked about this. Why is there a picture of the Eugene Memorial? Because I wanted it there. That's it. There's, that was purely parochial. But these are roles and responsibilities of all the, all the services, of all the services, okay? All right, who, uh, Where's? Uh, you're the only, I picked on you once. Who thinks they know geography? All right. Go ahead. Uh, you just want me to name all the countries, sir? Can you name them all? Uh, yes, sir, I can. I, you know what? You said that way too confidently, so I believe you. Pick one. i <laughs> Oh going to pick Oman. you weren't going to go obvious, Saudi Arabia. See, young Yelich cheers like, I'm going to pick the obscure Middle Eastern country. All right. Where's Oman at? Uh, Oman would
1: be on the kind of northeast part of the Arabian Peninsula underneath
2: the UAE. Very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. All right, I'm impressed. All right, see that country? So I'm going right, to now, I'm not, I'm not I'm going to come after you, okay? So <laughs> what COCOM do you think is responsible for Oman? Uh, SENCOM. Okay. So see that country on the far left, that big. Trapezoid? Yes, sir. What country's that?
1: Uh, Egypt. Ah,
2: what, what COCOM's in charge of Egypt? You want me to go back to them so you can read them all?
1: Uh, I also sent com, sir.
2: Oh, you, very good. <laughs> I tried to get them, right? I went into a different continent and I wanted you to say AFRICOM, didn't I? Yes, sir. I did. You didn't. Alright, now you're taking me off. Alright, now actually you're, you're making me angry now. Alright, so all right, the very top of the map, to the far left. Yes, what country is that? Turkey. I, uh, I, you're, I was going to say you had a high GPA, but you're at Notre Dame. All right. Okay, that makes sense. What COCOM is that?
1: Also psychotic.
2: No! <laughs> gotcha. You don't know anything. <laughs> very, you, I'm impressed. Very, very good. Very good. Uh, very good. I, I guarantee you, you see, I cheated on kids like you when I was in school. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's Turkey, it's UCOM, and you know why that's really, really relevant in our, modern, our recent history? When we were fighting OIF-1, that became that separation of Turkey and uh, Iraq. Uh, being in two different COCOMs became enormously a pain in the butt for planning, because Yes, we're all when before the war, we weren't in Iraq, right? So I was building what would I call collection decks for UAVs and other things, man, to fly in, take pictures, do weird things. I had to go through their airspace. And there were already rules which we called Operation Northern Watch and Operation Southern Watch that were in place from the original Desert Storm. And they were making life impossible. But and when we were trying to coordinate, the Central Commander wasn't doing it. He was different co com so you had two of these four stars, and they super pain in the butt. So it goes to show you how important those relationships are and where those lines in the world are, because the enemy doesn't fight in those lines. Why is the Middle East really screwed up? I mean, look, read the history of why Iraq is Iraq, why Saudi Arabia is Saudi Arabia. It's an unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You think what happened, right? There is a there is a family Al sud and in the 1700s, some guy, Ibn Wahhabi, who was kicked, was actually kicked from his family in the 18th century, develops a relationship with them. He becomes like their spiritual figurehead, marries into the family. They're a bunch of bandits riding around on horseback. That family almost goes extinct twice. They almost get eliminated. They're the enemies of the Ottoman Empire. We're in World War I. The Brits are having trouble in Yemen, and they need some help. And they get, they get some help. So, and now I'm generalizing things. So we allies win the war. We throw them a bone. Hey, here's a really worthless piece of desert. <laughs> and they become Saudi Arabia. How's supposed to? Who knew? With 20-somethings when they struck oil, 27, bam. Seriously. Think about if they, and I mean this, think about if they gave them Jordan. They don't have that. You know what I mean? What in a, that simple fact that the land they gave them, and they cut that part of the world up, not based on tribal lines. If you, I'm, I'm not blaming the Brits, but that has a lot to do with what's going on in the Middle East. How we decided the Allies to cut the map. All right. So, goldwater nickels is really, really important for a military guy. Everybody should know what that is if you're going to join the military. It changed the way we fight. Back in the day. The COCOM, that geographical combatant commander, did not report directly to the Secretary of Defense. They, took, they went through the Joint Chairman. They don't do that anymore. That is a direct relationship. They changed many, many things, that act in 86. It had a profound effect, a profound impact, on our military today. So you should know what that is in general if you're going to join the military. A combatant commander has OPCON, Operational control of the forces in his theater of command when they're there. Okay, that's OpCon, operational control. Why is that relevant to UAVs? I'll tell you. All right, now, on thats tactical control. So uh, this became a really, really big deal in the soft community and in the Marine Corps during the last several during this, since Afghanistan started. What was happening was the tactical units didn't have assets that they could own and control and dictate that were capable. We had pioneers, they were really loud. The enemy knew they were there. We wanted to do surreptitious surveillance. I wanted to stare at the bad guy and not the bad guy, no. The assets that could do that were your predators of the world. Sometimes they even couldn't do it. At 18,000 feet in a valley with atmospherics, you could hear this thing maybe. You know, because maybe a guy was on a mountain, and that thing's at 18,000 feet uh, AGL or, you know, MSL, and the diff- you get the difference, right? There's sea level and ground level. So I can be AGL and be 8,000 feet above the sea. So all of a sudden now I'm only 10,000 feet below the UAV, and it could be heard. The tactical units, the SF groups, the Marine battalions, they wanted ISR that their local commander, that battalion commander, that company commander, could dictate and say, I want you to fly here, this is when I want you to fly, and not uh, be competing with other organizations for that resource, which when we go back to OpCon, if it's a predator controlled by Central Command, Everybody in that theater is competing for those assets. So you may or may not get that ISR. So tactical control of the UAV has become an enormous, enormously desirable thing for the tactical operator. It makes sense. However, the technology that we could fit on UAVs that size wasn't great in 2001. That has evolved tremendously since then. And so now, we have capabilities, and those UAVs can do things that we couldn't do 16 years ago. Does that make sense? All right, all right. Yeah, like you're going to tell me it doesn't. You're like, tell, like, if I say no, he might not shut up. All right. All right. So to give you a perspective of tactical level, all right, see in the bottom yellow, Operational—that's your joint forces. Strategic—that's your national policy stuff. Tactical is the rubber reach the road. That's that Marine with a rifle delivering a bad intention at the—you know—coming out of the muzzle. That's what that is. All right. So we we call UAVs now. We used to call them. Classes, they changed it to groups, one being the smallest micros. Now we have micros, little tiny ones. The handheld ones you see guys flying, you'll see some video here in a minute. Uh, That's going to be, you know, I I think it's under 20 pounds and all these other limitations. There's that's a a group two is under 55 pounds. And then, so the higher the number, the bigger the UAV, generally speaking. No, that's true, bigger the UAV, but there's other qualifications other than weight, there's endurance and and payload capacity. So this, this is um, the Reaper, because your V is up. Predator's down, by the way. You, you, you can't. It's hard to tell in a picture, because you can't see the size difference. So this was the tool of to trade, the big one expensive, but not tactical control, the tactical commander. But it's beyond line of sight, meaning it talks to a satellite. So the video feed that the camera gets and the command goes through a satellite, which means what? I can fly really far. I'll show you what I mean by that. Very, very important. We couldn't, we were really far away from being able to do this not too long ago. So see that mountain? That line's a mountain. I can talk to that UAV. If I had line-of-sight operations, which we would call tethered, I couldn't talk to it. So think about this. Just the curvature of the earth gets in the way, believe it or not. At if, if my transmit antenna is on the ground and the UAV, to talk 127 miles, the UAV needs to be at 10,000 feet just because of curvature of the earth. I wouldn't be able to talk to UAV unless it's at 10,000 feet. I bet you wouldn't have guessed that. Now, if I have a little UAV who has a little camera, at 10,000 feet, that collection is irrelevant. So by having a satellite in the way, I can now take that UAV to a relevant altitude where I can collect what I want, all right? So you see my cool graphics? I got a bad guy. He's emitting energy, and he's talking to the UAV. The UAV's collecting that. The UAV's sending that information back to what we call the Ground Control Center, the GCS, okay? And that's an old GCS. I put that picture to show you what the technology used. Now, you know, you've seen it on TV, right? Guys can do a lot of things, not everything, from this little Xbox controller with a screen, all right? Now, I'll, I'll give you an example of what your generation did. Change the game, I'm dead serious. So. When we first started doing small UAVs, a lot of the people that get into it were the remotely pious. Via- Anybody a hobbyist? Fly radio-controlled UAVs as a hobby? Anybody do that growing up? Really? I usually get a couple hands. Or now no one's raising because they don't want me to pick on them. But, which is a prudent decision. Oh, there you go. You did it as a hobby? For how long? You just started? Okay. You have no time, right? You're going to school. You're here at Notre Dame. What's your major? You didn't raise your hand earlier, did you? When I asked for political science majors, you think I forgot? All right. Now, so so, you, you have the box with the two joysticks when you fly? All right. So in the beginning of the game, we, we're going to go to muscle memory, right? So uh, an example is you're probably familiar with the M4 rifle and that lower receiver that we call has the AR-15 design. What's it look like? You got the, the banana magazine slaps in, I got my magazine eject button there, I got on my left hand side, I got safe, fire, you know, all that. Well, we build a lot of weapons now in the military with that same what we call lower receiver, why? Muscle memory for the operator. It may be a different caliber weapon, it may have a different scope, but man, when I'm in muscle memory mode, I'm doing all the same movements. Does that make sense? Okay, well, the UAV operator doing the same thing. He wanted this box. But as the UAV operators of the future started coming in, hey, can you do that in an Xbox controller? True story. All the younger guys and gals wanted it like an X because it's your muscle memory. And, man, and it was did We did some, we did, you know, did it, put the radio in it, and they're out there doing loop to loop. like, oh, my God. <laughs> A button, A button, A button. I'm like, hey, dude, there's, there's no super attack. You know? Anyway. My kids make fun of me because every once in a while I'll play PlayStation with them and they play all the Call of Duty stuff. And I have to look at the controller. They hit the buttons and that's when they shoot me. I'm like, what's the kill button? Anyway. So, all right. I got, that's kind of touchy. All right. Tech drivers. What are the things from a technology side that has influenced the game? They're all over the place. I'm not gonna talk about all of them. I'm gonna pick a couple and my aero engineer's about to get it again, so. All right, in the middle, in the center is what? What's in the center? Power plants, all right. The engine, really important. Crazy as this sounds, with manned aviation, that's where they're always going to start, right? With UAVs, they didn't. Uh, And part of the problem was the technology didn't exist. So we went to the little UAVs, little, small, highly reliable engines didn't exist. So they had to go to the hobby world. So 3W engines, um, DA engines, if you were in that little hobby, you'd know what they are. And then we were trying to make them better building a house on a bad foundation. So it was a real challenge for us. So that is, you know, if the engine stinks, I'm off to a bad start. So I put power, not the most attractive or coolest thing to talk about. Even though it's not manned, in my opinion, it's by far the most important piece of the airplane. I need to understand my mission. So to the aero design guys, um, stand back up. All right. So, I got a swept wing, okay? Is that good or bad at slower
1: speeds? It's worse at slower speeds. Thank you. Why would you have a swept swing, swept wing? So, it would help with like sonic speeds going higher than
2: Mach 1? Because the airflow changes, right? Now, I don't really know that smart people have told me that. So, because I couldn't draw what's happening. Thanks, sit down. That's right. We have built UAVs with swept wings for a really cool purpose of recovery. But what we don't fully analyze is when you design aircraft to do one thing, there's trade-off other places. And we see that all the time. So the, you really need to understand when you go to the design phase, what do I really want this UA for? And I talk about noise. So if I want a quiet UAV, I don't have a pusher prop. That's one. So aero design is huge. I have a very, very good friend who worked on several of my UAVs that we built within SOCOM for special purposes. Brilliant aeronautical engineer. Uh, He's at Oklahoma State. And he tells his students in the first day, um, everything we knew, we know about aeronautical design, we knew by the 40s. We're not learning new things about... Airflow over an air surface. What has really changed the game is not what we understand about aeronautics, it's about material science. Now I can make the same design and make it strong and make it much lighter, which matters. That's more payload, that's a longer flight. Material science is a big part of the game. He also shows this, I have it on my phone. It's a great slide. And he has this slide and it has an astronaut from the moon, uh, the Apollo missions on the moon. And it says there's two kinds of countries. There's countries that use the metric system, and there's countries that land on the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Right? We're the only ones that have landed on the moon, and we're the only ones that don't use the metric system. So, I love that slide. I love that slide. All right, so this has really changed, particularly in the soft community. There has been a greater, greater, greater demand for the smallest and smaller UAVs. Very tactical. The Puma UAV, I'm going to show you the video. uh, Those guys can literally not put it in their pack, per se, but it's very mobile from a manned perspective. I can definitely fit it in a small vehicle, and it's pretty capable. So um, why would, what are other reasons do you think a military operator would want a very small UAV? Yeah. Detect, sir? It is. It has a smaller signature. That's absolutely correct. What else? I'm going to pick somebody. Go
1: ahead. Sir, when you get on target and yeah. you find that maybe something's changed from your mission planning, you want to check and do some reconnaissance in the area without the Predator, sir? Yeah, absolutely. It's
2: easily deployable. Stand up. Yes, sir. No, no. The, one, the one in the other uniform. If you really thought I was gonna go through this without one of you answering one of my questions, <laughs> you really would naive. All right, so you are a platoon commander of young, highly motivated killers. How might you use that little UAV? Uh,
3: you can use the UAV in a small unit so you don't have to have all of your men go in one spot. You have a few. Say you are in a group, um, there might be some in the area, you don't have to have everyone go you can send a small
2: force. Absolutely, very good answer, great answer. Best answer I've heard all day, as a matter of fact. <laughs> 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 See, so that's right, it's small, it's deployable. I don't require a lot of resources to deploy it or recover it. I can have a Puma, it literally comes up, the air engineer will like this, it literally goes into intentional stall, the Puma, and falls out of the sky. Very violent landing, materials, then I have to use a carbon fiber that's light, can take the impact. Um, So uh, there are plenty of reasons why I want really tiny UAVs, but they're less capable. They're on batteries, they only fly for 90 minutes. So think of it this way, I'm gonna look over the next hill. That's a general way to look at it, all right? So let me play the video, now I gotta do this, all right. Hey, Brandon, you sleeping up there? All right, man. I've known that kid since he was wearing diapers, by the way. And that was till he was 12. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Look at this, man. I'm an audiovisual master. Tone that down some geez. Can I do that? <laughs> <laughs> I on my
3: <laughs>
2: seal, <laughs> seal train. beginning of the video you saw that black and white that's a thermal imager all right and you'll see sometimes and you'll notice this particularly once you get out in your services and you're dealing with this stuff you'll sometimes the hotter object will be black sometimes the hottest object will be white and a lot of the time that's the person and that's called white hot or black hot and most of these cameras now based on the contrast you can flip back and forth and one will look better than the other in terms of being able to visually see what you want to see but that gives you a perspective of what the technology can do from a night camera to day camera. And um, I- I'm telling you, I wish I could take you all back 30. This was unconceivable in that small of a package back in the day. So I can fly this thing for two hours, get this unbelievable night image. Those original pioneers, the first night cameras we put in there were FLIRs, or, which were long wave IR. Okay. Um, now, a lot of the imagery you see on TV is going to be called medium wave IR. And we much better contrast, but it's, high, it's more expensive. You've got to cryogenically cool it and all these things. Back in the day, we couldn't make small cryogenically cooled cameras. We had a long wave IR on the Pioneer. You only could fly it for one hour. Think about that, the operational relevance. Most of the time, we didn't even fly it at night. The camera, the gimbal would lock up. We'd lose link on the tracking antenna. The camera would get too hot. So think about it. You're operationally trying to conduct a mission, and you're only going to get one hour of video. So we really didn't use it at night. Now I can do it on a little UAV. I hand lodge. Things fight. Great imagery. I want to listen to more ACDC. But... OK. And what's really driven is the evolution of requirements. As The enemy evolves. We have to change. They change how they do business, and we change how we do business. And now we're even in the world of micros. These little tiny, there's these little UAVs that fly out of your hand. Now, going back to my RF engineer, really tiny antenna, not a lot of power, you can't talk real far. And the camera's really tiny, so limited. But if uh, soft's going into a building, and there's an adobe wall around a compound, He wants to be able to pull it out of his pocket, it flies out of his hand, it flies around a building, and it lets him know, right? Or when they're going into breach, you know, he can, uh, or once they breach, he can fly it inside a building, limited, you know, fly around a room, whatever. So there is a high level of interest in the really tiny ones. The one you're seeing doesn't come out of your hand, but because of the commercial market, There's a real infatuation with the quadcopter right now, and we're still trying to figure out the best way in a DOD application how to use it. Now, the most obvious thing about this is the vertical takeoff component, right? When I have a vertical takeoff and land, it really makes things a lot easier in terms of the geographical space and my footprint on how to operate. The... uh, Sound guy was helping when we were setting up. He's up there. He's doing a great job. He's telling me the mic. And he was telling me, hey. And I violated like 47 times. He's like, don't go past here, here. You'll get off the camera and don't turn your head. And I've been doing it all day. And I told him, hey, yell at me. Hey, say, hey, jackass. Stop doing that. But he's too polite. So um, that means I just made his job a lot harder. All right. I want to briefly talk about this topic because it's enormously important. I am going to tell you here and now, and I have witnesses, Mr. Rich Early being one of them. Two years ago, I firmly believed that this was going to be the next IED type of problem. And when I improvised explosive device, so when you were all in grade school and high school, you probably heard about it in the news, it was the number one killer of our forces. This is scary because now they can go to a store, buy equivalent of a toy, fly it with their phone or their tablet, and I don't need to be a pilot, I'm hitting buttons, fly out. Very simple, they have night cameras. You can buy these at your tech store if you want to spend a lot of money on your kid. Our enemies can easily procure these and now conduct Relatively sophisticated, in my opinion, an ISR operation at a tactical level with really is a toy. This is a problem technologically that is right now aggressively being pursued. This is a problem, and you, in many of your jobs, are going to be dealing with this problem when you uh, when you take that oath and in your commission. It's counter UAV. How do I counter that threat? And believe it or not, why, you know, we go through budget cycles and they get delayed. The Taliban doesn't have to do that. Taliban doesn't have a budget cycle, you know. So lack of technology and simplicity is not always a bad thing at all. That's how insurgencies work. That is not a bad thing. All the time. Tell
1: them about the bird. Is
2: that federally funded money? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes, not that picture, but I think that was the French or somebody doing it. We, the federal law enforcement, have looked at this. A great, it works fabulously. By the way, these these large predatory birds, I guess, don't like something flying below them, and they can train these things because they naturally want to snatch them out of the sky. And quite frankly. that's better, that will be, I'm guessing, much more reliable than any technology that we can deliver because it's in their DNA to do it. Are you
1: telling me to invest in birds?
2: Yeah. Yes, buy a lot of falcons. <laughs> All right. All right. So, vin- three, three vignettes, we'll hit one of them. American hostages in Columbia. So. There was, a, there was American hostages. Uh, they were DOD contractors, and uh, I think it was 2004, 2006. Anyway, their plane went down. They were in Colombia. they were doing surveillance, counter-drug mission. and they were captured by the FARC,, okay, which is a well-known terrorist group, uh, um, the revolutionary army of the Republic of Colombia. And they were held for like, uh, what, five years? And we spent a lot of time and energy in the headquarters trying to find them it was very, 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 very hard. Triple canopy jungles, you know, no RF, tracking people. Um, what ultimately found them was not super duper cool technology. It was old school doing business. So technology does not solve all of our problems. All right, last slide. I firmly believe um, that the UAV is, uh, from a military perspective, has. I can't think of anything that has changed the way we fight a single technology more than the UAV in the last 15 years. And so uh, I hope that I think it's a fantastic topic. It's interesting. You do exciting things. And I'm guessing that a handful of you are going to be touching the technology and be involved with it in your military careers. Thanks for letting me be here. Thanks for pretending you're interested. Uh, it's very polite to you. Um, it truly is a blessing to be able to come and talk at this institution. So uh, thank you very much.
0: Uh, John, thanks for uh, absolutely superb presentation, really a uh, tour de force. Um, My colleague Anika Johnson uh, makes a lot of the posters for uh, NDISC activities. I have to say this one is my absolute favorite. It reminds me of Apocalypse Now and the the image of Marlon Brando as Colonel Kurtz. Some of you see that
2: in the post office, yeah.
0: (laughs) So please, John, accept this as a uh, small token of our appreciation uh, for what will be not your uh, first. It will be your first visit to this, but not your last. Yes. Come back again. soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
3: If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu/ndisc/ or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers not of the international security center or the university of notre dame which take no institutional position music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap